MSW Media. Are stay-at-home orders legal and constitutional? And does Donald Trump have the authority to override them and reopen the economy? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And today I'm joined again by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly again on this podcast. But before I uh, speak with Patty and our guest, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode with special thanks to Michelle Dew, Eric DeWurst, Edie, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie Gordon, Steve Hungsberg, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. And in particular, I do want to thank James Frohmeyer. He loaned me his podcasting equipment. We usually go to a fantastic studio to record. Uh, and since we've been in lockdown, I haven't been able to go there. And now, hopefully, the, you're going to hear some improved sound quality starting on this episode. But let's get to Patty. Patty, it is so great to hear you again and finally have you back on the podcast. Thank you for having me back. I uh, was a little bit nervous sometimes when I you know, wasn't able to do your show that you might not want me back because I was gone for so long. You know, oh, I do pretty well without, you know, Patty chipping in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You were very missed. Everyone was asking about you and I was thinking about you. And I tried very hard not to bother you because I know from firsthand experience how difficult it is to be on the campaign trail. And I imagine that must have been quite an experience for you. Well, you know, I, I know that you have a lot of experience with running, but I think one of the differences is that I had a very flexible schedule. I'm a, I'm a freelance consultant and I'm able, I was able to spend a lot of time getting out, meeting people. And that's the part that I miss so much is uh, really connecting with my neighbors. And I've, I've just, I feel like I've changed so much in the last almost year now. Cause I started last May. Wow. That, that This has to be such a big change for you to go from knocking doors and being out there campaigning all the time now to being home and, of course, dealing with all of this coronavirus stuff. Well, uh, really overnight because we went to bed on March 17th. Uh, knowing that that this might be happening, that the shelter in place might be looming. It was already started in California. And uh, yeah, it, but it's also uh, given me a chance to focus and, and work on what is coming next. But because I do know I want to run for office regardless of the outcome. And thank you to so many of your listeners who were uh, sending me kind messages of support and, and really uh, encouragement. So thank you, everybody. And you in particular, Renato and Quinn, uh, it was an amazing adventure, and I look forward to doing it again because it is, as we can tell right now, uh, the conversation we're going to have today, how crucial local government really is in everyone's everyday life. 
Absolutely, absolutely. So what, what about this? What did you learn from this whole experience, uh, Patty? I imagine it had to be life-changing. Well, I, it was. And the reason I got involved in Springfield was because of my experience as a mother of a child with a disability. And the growth in the last year, you know, going from, well, here's what I want to bring uh, you know, my story, my experiences was, you know, as a storyteller, as somebody who has been uh, a playwright, a performer, or a stand-up comic, what I realized along the way is that my strength is is really reflecting the stories and the values of my neighbors in a way that I think will help them. And, and it's something that I know I can I can do for people down the road as I continue to grow as, as not, and not as a politician, but as a public servant. Wow. That's great. Do you have any advice for people who are thinking of running? I know we've already had one of our frequent guests, Mimi Roca, is running. I imagine there are other listeners who are thinking about running for office themselves. If you're thinking about running for office, and the thing that I knew I should have done a couple of years ago was to get involved in local in neighborhood organizations you know like i we have the jefferson park neighbors association the chamber of commerce uh your church groups uh, start to find ways to let people know that you're interested that you're there to serve too i mean if i think if you lay that foundation before you say i want this position of responsibility show that you are somebody who is going to keep showing up regardless of what an election shows yeah, for sure. I do think that it's important to do that. You know, win or, win or lose, you know, if you really are about moving issues forward, it should be it sh- you should be getting involved in doing whatever you can otherwise. And I will say on my part, you know, I had run for office, uh, you know, a year and a half or two years ago, and I have, you know, continued to be very involved uh, doing whatever I could, uh, you know, to move issues forward that I care about. And, you know, that's something I'm going to be doing what I can in this upcoming election to, su- to support uh, Joe Biden and other uh, candidates, because, frankly, this election is so important. It really is. And I am uh, I, I agree. And I've been volunteering with my alderman's office, making sure that seniors know that we're here to help. But, you know, down the road, as we get closer to the general election in November, you know, we need to make sure that people know to get their mail in ballots done. It's never been more important than it will be this year. Without a doubt. Well, right now, uh, we're all trying to deal with a lot of different challenges that are posed by this pandemic. You know, our topic today, we're going to be talking to a professor who's written about the legality and constitutionality of a lot of what the government is doing to try to combat the pandemic. It seems now, you know, now that we've been doing this for a while, that more and more people are raising questions about um, whether or not uh, government has the authority to tell you to stay at home. Government has the authority to stop churches from gathering, businesses from staying in business, and so on. Exactly. It is, uh, and, and we can see the the, react, the different reactions. It's amazing. We knew that people were wired differently when it came to their perception of science or what our government's role is, but the last few days have been somewhat unsettling. I don't know about you. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, conversations about what is an acceptable percentage of people dying is I, I know people I know three people personally who have lost the battle against COVID-19. Wow. Yeah, I um, I have a number of, of friends who have had COVID-19 and have suffered from it, uh, but none have have died. I have had friends who had family members die who said my aunt died or things like that, but no one that I've known has died. That must have been very difficult. It was my uh, friend of mine from high school, and I had just met her husband last summer, actually during the campaign, a really sweet man, uh, Alvin Elton. 
uh, passed away. He was 56 years old. He was one of the first in the neighborhood that we knew uh, who died. And then it was a neighbor whose doorbell I had rung in February. Uh, I got the word the same day that Alvin died, uh, that Louis Gonzalez, who uh, I had rung his doorbell. He messaged me a few days later, said, hey, I went on your website. You seem incredible. Uh, I love how authentic you are, how devoted you are to the neighborhood. Bring a lawn sign by. And he wrote me several messages of encouragement. And he passed away the same day that Alvin Elton had died, or at least wow. within a day. Yeah. And then a That's very crazy. and then uh, Dr. Sockets, who's a, uh, a veterinarian on the northwest side who d- devoted his life to saving animals. Uh, and it was a, a bird expert. He uh, did a lot of surgeries on dogs that were abused. Uh, he also passed away within a week. So with three within one week. Wow. That's unbelievable. Well, I, I will tell you in my life what I've been dealing more with are pe- people's reactions to this crisis. I have, a, you know, my, my father and others in my family are, uh, I think, you know, people who get their news from right-wing radio and Fox News and don't really believe that this is a real crisis, don't think it's a liberal hoax and think it's overblown. So I've had to deal with that. You know, people who don't want to, my dad's a cashier at Walmart and doesn't want to uh, you know, use gloves or a mask. I mean, it's very hard uh, for me to to deal with. And then, you know, I have others in my family who have a lot of anxiety, uh, you know, related to this. And that's just, it's. I think it's it's hitting different families and different communities in different ways. Oh, no doubt. Well, let's, let's now let's bring in our guest. Anthony Michael Christ is a professor at Chicago Kent College of Law, uh, where he has uh, you know, he's a he's earned a Ph.D. in political science. He's also um, a uh, a scholar in terms of family law and the treatment. Uh, the, he focuses on the, the law's treatment of vulnerable persons, particularly with respect to LGBTQ individuals. But he's also uh, published and written recently about the authority of state governments and the federal government uh, to. Um, restrict our liberties in in the midst of a quarantine in order to improve public health. So now let's bring in Professor Kreiss. Thank you for joining us, Professor Kreiss. I appreciate it. No, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So we're starting to see uh, now that this uh, lockdown or stay-at-home period has been has been going on for weeks, a bit of a backlash, and there have been people questioning whether or not. Uh, governors or the or the federal government have the authority to order people to stay home uh, as a as a as a legal matter. Uh, what what legal authority do they have to uh, issue and enforce those orders? Yeah, so so states and local governments have what we generally refer to as police power, right? So the idea being that that state and local governments have the ability to enact. Uh, you know, measures for the, the public's welfare and, and benefit. And so they have a broad authority um, to, to do you know, what they think is necessary, so long as it's not discriminatory, it doesn't run afoul of other right, constitutional protections um, or statutory limits on their power. Um, you know, they have, a, they have a really extraordinary amount of latitude about what kinds of measures that they're going to put in place to protect the public. So these kinds of stay-at-home orders are consistent with that, you know, that police power that state and local governments have. Um, you know, the, the question becomes at some point, um, you know, are those measures tailored in such a way that is, that is a proportional response to the public health crisis 
at hand. And that's where you might have some some interesting litigation questions, right, in the in the religious liberty context or the right to protest. Um, you know, but but what you are seeing that doesn't really have that that same kind of gray area. Um, our government orders, right, to shut businesses down, uh, right, mm-hmm. things like that, which which generally have a much lower, um, you know, or, or I should say courts kind of rubber stamp economic regulations in a way that, you know, civil rights, civil liberties don't get rubber stamped. And, and that's really the divide I think that we're going to see in terms of the challenges that people present to those kinds of orders, right? Um, right. So so I think those are the kind of, if I were to classify the two different kinds of challenges we might see. It'd be mm-hmm. one kind of economic and the other, right, liberty and, and civil rights oriented. Right. So uh, and the distinction here, just to make sure it's crystal clear for our listeners, is that there are certain rights that, of course, we have enshrined in the Constitution. So we have a right to uh, have the free exercise of religion. We have a right to peacefully assemble. Those rights are enshrined in the Constitution and telling people that they can't hold a church service or that they can't gather for a protest, for example, in a crowd of 200 people is different than an economic activity that, that doesn't involve a right that is specifically enumerated in the Constitution. Is that is that a fair way of explaining it? Yeah, I think that's right. And, and you know, what we, uh, you know, as a society, I think what we want to make sure of is that when we have these rules in place, that they're not used to, you know, they're not enforced in a way that's, um, you know, inequitable uh, or that targets a particular group. So, so you don't want to target religious gatherings in a way that you wouldn't want to regulate political gatherings or other kinds of social gatherings. Um, you know, so, so, so you, what you want to make sure is that you have a thoughtful policy in place that's equitable and, and is enforced, um, you know, across different groups and different kinds of, of, of you know, people um, in a way that's fair and, and thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the issue there, of course, in the, so let, let's, let's start with, I would say, let's say with the religious uh, liberty uh, issue. I mean, in, in other words, what are the legal issues that are imposed that are that are that arise from a government order that prevents religious gatherings, all gatherings, but including religious gatherings for, let's say, you know, large groups of people, whether it's 20 or more or 50 or more? Yeah. So, so you know, there's there's kind of a patchwork of religious liberty law state by state. But as a federal matter, um, when, when a state or a local government takes action, if it's if it's a if it's an action which is generally applicable and it's neutral to religion, you don't have a federal constitutional right to claim an exemption. So, so, so long as the orders apply to all gatherings of certain sizes and social distancing norms, right? So the six feet requirement uh, between people is enforced for secular and non-secular events, then there's really no First Amendment problem so long as that's enforced equitably. What you could see happen, and, and right, so there was a case in, in Mississippi where there, uh, I think it was Greenville, Mississippi, where fines were issued, but later rescinded uh, for a group that was, it was a church group that gathered, but they, they all did it mobily in their cars. Uh, so they didn't actually get out of the cars. And so mm-hmm. they actually adhered to social distancing, even though they were all, you know, kind of congregated, um, right? If you, if you enforced you know, a, a stay-at-home order against them in a way that you wouldn't maybe say a drive-through at McDonald's. There might be a, there might actually be a constitutional problem there, right? Because you're 
because you're 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 enforcing something against that group in a way that doesn't square with the public health rationale and is actually seemingly right a disproportionate response versus you know you know you, you see church groups in Louisiana and in Georgia for example actually gathering in 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 small churches and refusing to socially distance and there right that's a different scenario you don't get you don't get to exempt yourself from the same rules that apply to everyone else in a public health crisis simply because your your purpose is religious in nature interesting and is is this are there different rules in terms of the constitution for um, let's say the free exercise of religion where you have religious gatherings versus first amendment gatherings, because of course there, there are also, uh, you know, there's also a right to organize and, and uh, peacefully assemble for purposes of, let's say a political protest. Yeah. I, I think this is actually one of the most challenging uh, dynamics of, of the last few days. So there was a, a protest, for example, in Raleigh, North Carolina, against Governor Cooper's stay-at-home order, um, and the the Raleigh police had tweeted that protesting was not an essential function and therefore uh, was was subject to uh, you know penalization under the governor's stay-at-home order. Now I find that very troubling, even though I wish every single one of those people were at home. Um, you know, the the question is is can people protest? And still maintain right the, the six foot distance, um, and and you know maybe you know the crowd size limitations should still apply, right? Is there a way that we can protect, you know, perter- preserve and protect that First Amendment interest while also preserving the public health interest? And I think the answer is yes. Um, what is more troubling, though, are situations like um, Michigan, where in Lansing uh, yesterday, or the other day. Uh, you had in, in Ohio and Columbus where you actually had protesters against stay-at-home orders, you know, basically shoving their faces against plate glass windows, mm-hmm. um, you know, shoulder to shoulder. Um, and and you have to ask yourself, first of all, you know, where are these folks getting their public health information? Because that's problematic. But second of all, right, that is a situation where it's not about the right to protest. You know, these folks are are jeopardizing their own health, the health of the other people that are there and the communities when they go back. Um, and so, so that I think you could have, you know, that might well be a, a situation where the police could interject themselves and break up an unlawful gathering. Um, it has nothing to do with, you know, opposing the protest or deeming protests to be non-essential or somehow inherently violative of a stay-at-home order. But it is just saying, right, you 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 cannot protest and violate the basic conditions that are that are imposed on everybody, right? So mm-hmm. if you're protesting. You're gathering for a religious function. If you're you, you want to have a Republican, you know, get out, you know, or a Republican rally or a Democratic rally, doesn't matter who you are. If the rules apply to everybody equally, that's what I think is that's the touchstone of the analysis. I think. Right. It, it's a, it's a, it's similar when there isn't a pandemic. In other words, there are often types of restrictions that are placed on a public gathering or protest where, for example, you can't, you, there are certain areas where you can't protest, uh, you know, you can't protest in the middle of the interstate or something like that, as long as they're neutral uh, and they just affect where or when you could protest, where you can, ha- where you can have your parade, let's just say, or when, um, that's usually okay as long as you're not discriminating against a specific group. Right, right. Uh, let's turn now to the issue of of the federal government's authority related to this, because this has been a topic recently. Patty, do you have any uh, questions from our listeners on that topic? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, people obviously want to know what constitutional weight uh, Trump's assertions have to reopen the country, given the various terms of stay at home orders. Right. So every and, and this I see a lot on social media. One person actually said that each state is essentially its own country. So people are saying those kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, right. So so states are sovereign entities, which is, you know, uh, an important aspect of our constitutional system, which is a federal system uh, where power is divided between the national and, and state and local governments. What's what's important here, I think, is that the president doesn't have some kind of innate uh, constitutional authority that is given to him under Article two, which governs the presidency to interpose his will on on the govern on the governors. So there is no, you know, unlike the states when we talk about the states having kind of a plenary uh, police power, um, that kind of broad general police power does not rest with the federal government or with the president inherently. So the president can't go in and, and demand a governor do something, um, you know, and, and with the force of law. Now, what the president can do and probably should have been doing for a long time is using the White House, using the Oval Office, using the presidency as a bully pulpit to force governors to do the right thing. So, for example, Governor DeSantis of Florida dragged his heels for weeks and weeks and weeks to to impose a stay at home order and let these spring breakers right run amok throughout the you know, Florida beaches. That was a public health crisis. Like every single public health expert said that was a terrible decision by the governor. What the president should have done and could have done right was use his bully pulpit to to kind of force Governor DeSantis to to, to use his power uh, for the public good, right? So that so it's it's a communicative kind of power, right? It's a power mm-hmm. that's political, not legal. What you see the president doing now is actually doing doing that, but in the wrong direction probably. So this morning, right, the president's tweeting liberate Minnesota liberate Virginia, liberate Michigan, um, right? So the president is trying to use his his platform to force governors to, to uh, cave to what he wants uh, and, and and undo some of these stay-at-home orders. So he certainly has that, right, that capability, um, right? Whether he should use it or not or how he uses it, a whole different question. But he doesn't have some kind of legal authority barring congressional, you know, authorization to, to intervene in these kinds of matters. Right, which is why he's tweeting, right? If he, if he had the power to do something about it, he presumably would actually do it. Um, um, although he tr- he seemed to think he did for a period of time, right? We had the, uh, the total authority of the president or whatever his, his not, the nonsense was. That's, that's, the, that's the thing, though. The president has made multiple claims in the last week just alone about various powers that he has, right? Total authority. Um, you know, then he moved into the he has the power to adjourn Congress to ram through recess appointments, which he does not have that that power uh, to, to do. Right. Uh, that he had the power to quarantine states, which he does not have the authority to do. Um, right. The, so the, the public health, the federal public health statutes um, enables the CDC and enables the Surgeon General to quarantine individuals, not states. So, so this is a mm-hmm. pattern, right, where the president has said again and again and again over the last two weeks that he has some innate, inherent authority under under the Constitution to intervene when he just doesn't. He's he's basically, um, you know, other than production and supply chain issues, you know, he's a, he's supposed to be a cheerleader and a rallying you know a rallying point for good public health policy that that others can look to 
and and adopt for themselves, he's not the policy maker by and large. Well, let's you know a moment ago you did have an important caveat that you added, which is that his the power of the federal government would be different if Congress. Uh, joined in and enacted a law that was signed into law by the president. Can you tell us how Congress, in conjunction with the president, uh, which, of course, is unlikely given that we have a, uh, the Democrats controlling the House, but what, what power could Congress and the president together have that, 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 that Trump doesn't have on his own? Well, you, you could see, for example, a stimulus package of some kind uh, being enacted with, with some kind of strings attached. So, right, you don't get the stimulus money unless you do X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, so, so you, you could use the power of the purse, which is, right, Nancy Pelosi and the House's power, um, you know, to, to tie uh, federal money to certain kinds of benchmarks or certain types of actions. So you could kind of see something like that perhaps evolve. Um, you know, the president probably could be given the authority uh, to establish some you know, jurisdiction-based quarantines um, or things of that nature. Um, you know, that you know, certainly won't happen, but you could see that. Um, you know, so, so there are ways that Congress could enact legislation to give the president some power to, to do these things, particularly when they affect interstate commerce, um, right? So, so for mm-hmm. example, you now see all these kind of regional PACs arise. So we've got the West Coast PAC, we've got the New York, you know, New England, Mid-Atlantic PAC, and then you have the, the Great, Lakes, Great Lakes plus Kentucky, Upper, upper uh, South PAC, and, mm-hmm. and right, they're coordinating with one another. Now, there, someone could make the argument that, that that, in some respects, is an unconstitutional uh, pact among states. But that's, that's really only problematic if Congress weighs in and says, you can't do this, and we're going to usurp uh, that power or take that control and direct it, right? So, so basically, the states are, are enabled to do what they're you know, or, or have have a lot of the innate power to do what they want to do. They have the power to coordinate because there is an absence of federal uh, you know, legislation to the contrary. And so the president really doesn't have much wiggle room for to, to do anything other than sit and advise and watch. But that does not mean that he can't undermine and corrupt. And I think that's really the biggest issue here is whether the president will support state and local governments and the, the, the well-informed public health choices that they make, like Michigan, Minnesota, and Virginia, or will he use his power to undermine it and encourage people to, to break those right stay-at-home orders, which is a grave public health crisis. You know, that brings us, I think, to a listener question that, that I, I think the listener would probably want some more detail on. Uh, Patty, do you have that? Yes, in uh, relation to the uh, coordination between states and their agreement to coordinate reopening, does that violate Article 1, Section 10, prohibition on agreement or compact with another state? So the general principle behind the compact clause is that states can't coordinate in such a way that, that diminishes the power of the federal government. There's two arguments here. I mean, I think there's one argument that says you're not really diminishing the power of the federal government if you're acting in a temporary way and you're sharing information and, you know, but you're, but every state is kind of doing their own thing nonetheless. Um, you know, that, so that's one side of that argument. The other argument might be that they're in fact actually restricting interstate commerce. If they're, so if, if, for example, all the states in the New York PAC uh, say, you know, we're not going to open up until May, 
you know, 15th or May 30th. Um, you know, that, there's an argument there that they're actually coordinating a, a, a blockade of interstate commerce, which is generally the prerogative of the federal government. Um, the, the question, uh, you know, but, but those debates notwithstanding, there's two issues. One is that, you know, who's going to be able to challenge that, right? So um, typically a pact if, in a Right, in the sense that we normally would think of a pact, would be something that has an, an agreement that somebody wants to enforce. So uh, I'm New York, and I'm going to have a port, you know, create the Port Authority with New Jersey, and we're going to have an agreement. And if you break it, I'm going to go to federal court and enforce it against you. Right? Um, if if you had that kind of dynamic, where was, was, there was an attempt to make it a binding pact, I don't think a federal court would necessarily. Um, have anything to enforce against another state, right? Uh, it would just be a loose agreement that they reneged on. And and so that, I think, takes away from the idea that it's really a pact. Um, and, and actually what it is, it's just a group of friends making similarly, similar decisions. Um, but then the other question is, is, maybe it's just a, you know, maybe this is actually a political issue that's not justiciable uh, by by a federal court. So, in other words, right, a federal court doesn't have the power to review it because it's it's just a political uh, debate uh, or a po political issue. Um, and I think that's probably what would happen. Um, you know, these are you know these are states that are basically making their own decisions, but they're loosely guided by the decisions that other states around them are making. They're all independent anyway, and nobody's going to try to enforce. Um, you know, a, a state breaking that that decision against the other. But that being said, right, if Congress really wanted to take control of this and have the federal government take control of this, they could pass a statute and moot the whole thing, I think. There is no statute and there is there will be no statute. So uh, so I think the states are, are very, you know, the academic debate is very interesting and it'll continue. <laughs> but that's an academic debate. Like there, there's just no way any any federal court is going to get in the middle of this and and block it. Essentially, what we're seeing here is states stepping up in part because of the lack of federal leadership and federal coordination. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think, you know, historically, too, right, you know, courts don't want to get into fights about expertise, right? Courts in, in issues of public health and in national security and public emergencies, um, you know, courts, I, I think, are very hesitant to to throw themselves into the mix um, you know, unless unless there's like something very obviously wrong happening. Now, I you know I think it's important for courts to apply ordinary standards of review to public health emergency orders and the like. Um, but that aside, I also think the courts are you know much more likely to defer um, than they might otherwise normally be willing to do to the decisions made by public health officials on the ground. And, and I think that would apply to, to a lot of different kinds of challenges, including the, the, right, the compact clause, you know, any, any potential challenge there, simply because there is an absence of, of federal guidance to, to, to look mm -hmm. to. So, so I think that actually, in terms of litigation, that's an important dynamic, that the lack of, of robust uh, federal guidance here um, might actually help the states fend off any uh, any challenges. You know, Professor, I think most of the people listening to our podcast are very um, uh, sympathetic to state governments making decisions that they need to make uh, for public health, and particularly in this crisis, doing whatever they can to keep everyone safe. 
Um, that said, uh, it's important to make sure that we aren't setting precedents that could potentially be used in a way that restricts our liberty in the future. You can imagine a politician with, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, sinister ends potentially delaying or canceling an election or restricting certain uh, free speech rights. What can we do to make sure that that the, that we we have a, you know our legal system is prepared to take action when these you know emer- police powers are abused. Well, you know, I, I think that there's a the reality is that you know we need to be sure that we continue to have debates and conversations about what the government and our governments uh, are doing in our name, and that we we talk about you know, some of the issues that we might have with them and push back where appropriate. And, and we have that conversation, right? So a public health emergency is not an excuse to shut down, uh, you know, deliberative democratic debate. I think that's important. Um, you know, but I think that, you know, as someone who, who does a lot of work in legal history, we should look back to history and think about uh, some of those broader lessons as we you know, we, or we should use that as a lens for considering what's happening today. So, so I think there's maybe two examples I would I would consider. Um, you know, the first one is it's a case from the early 1900s. It's called Juho versus Williamson, and and it's a it was a, a case that was brought against a San Francisco quarantine that was intended in some respect to fight against bubonic plague. But what it really was, was an anti-Chinese racist uh, restriction on, on basically non-white citizens of, of San Francisco. And the court stepped in and said, no, right, you can't use public health to justify, you know, your racial animus. And, and the court, right, struck down that, that, um, that quarantine. Now, so that's important, right? So that lesson to me is that people's other biases will come into play in their decision-making process, and we need to make sure that we safeguard, you know, the public against those. As you know, if we could do it in the early 1900s, we certainly need to be able to do that today. The second le- historical lesson I, I think is important. Um, you know, I think about also from the early 1900s, actually around the same time period. Um, in New York, there was a, a smallpox outbreak. Now, smallpox was just right uh, 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 was lethal um, at this this time period, and um, there was a, a small community of Italian immigrants in the Upper East Side who uh, were living in tenements, and uh, the the city police wanted to inoculate the right inoculate the the, the folks in the tenements from um, from smallpox. Now, they had vaccines, and they were kind of crude, and they were privately made, not the greatest thing in the world. They were generally effective, though. But what happened, because they were so crude, is they would lay you up for, for, for days because, you know, you, you might get a low-grade infection. Well, you know, the progressive era, being a, you know, a middle-class, low, you know, lower-class laborer and being unable to go to work, uh, even if you were inoculated, was not a good thing. So people were afraid of being inoculated because the police were knocking down doors and, and bombarding right these, these vulnerable communities. But then people also didn't have a safety net. If they did get sick for a couple of days, they would lose their jobs. They'd have to go to work, right? All these things. So I think the other thing that we need to think about is, is how do the, the way we police these measures affect vulnerable communities, right? How are, mm-hmm. you know, how does the communication from elected officials to the public, you know, that matters, you know, why we're doing it. And it's also important to think about the broader, more systemic effects 
of what we're doing and who it's really harming and who is most harmed and most vulnerable. Uh, you know, you know, you know, folks. Um, you know, this this is there's certainly a racial dynamic, right, to the people who are mm-hmm. who find themselves harmed by the coronavirus because of longstanding systemic harms that we've done, you know, in, in our public health choices, for example. So I, I think that's the thing I would like to, you know, the long, it's a very long answer, but I think that's what I want people to think about, right? History teaches us that vulnerable communities are always particularly susceptible to public health crises um, and that, you know, the government mm-hmm. doesn't always do the, the, the upstanding thing. And so we need to have that debate. We need to have those conversations. But we also need to be mindful of how those types of uh, actions might disproportionately affect the, the vulnerable and the voiceless. This is in many ways an opportunity for us in response to this crisis to perhaps do things to ameliorate or improve some of the systemic biases and systemic inequalities that there are in our system more generally. I think that's right. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I really appreciate you joining us, Professor. Thank you so much. I learned a lot from this. Uh, I, I I suspect our listeners will as well. Uh, this has been really informative. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me, and it's uh, it's been great. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast. Go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 